is the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gives me great joy to be able to preach uh, today. I got it. You're good. You're um, for the first time in my life, I get to preach on Resurrection Sunday, which is uh, quite, a, quite a privilege. Um, if I haven't met you, um, see a couple of less familiar faces. I'm Blake. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, and uh, I do have the chance to preach uh, every now and then. Um, so it gives me uh, great joy to be able to do that for you today. Um, preaching is never a privilege that I take lightly when I get to share this pulpit. But especially, especially today, on arguably what is the most significant day of the year for Christians, it's an even greater privilege. It's a joy for us to be able to gather on this special day and remember that Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. As we celebrate this morning and we dwell upon the resurrection of Jesus, our Savior, I think it's important that we consider the monumental significance of this event. Resurrection. After all, the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in all of human history. It's the central event upon which the foundation of our hope as Christians rests. Because without the resurrection of Jesus, we have nothing at all. Nothing. Because of the resurrection, though, we have everything. Now, of course, we can't understand fully the resurrection of Jesus without first understanding what happened before that. On Good Friday, the death of Jesus. And we spent time this past Friday night here dwelling upon what Jesus did when he laid down his life on the cross for us. It's incredibly important that we understand that in his sacrificial death upon the cross, Jesus himself, 1 Peter says, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It says, by his wounds you have been healed. See, though every one of us is a sinner and we deserve the righteous wrath of God upon us for our sin, and we deserve the death penalty for that sin, Scripture says, it also says that Jesus offered himself to take that death penalty for us. He was our substitutionary sacrifice. He laid down his life in our place, taking the death penalty that we deserved. 
so that we might be forgiven of our sin if we would repent of our sins and trust in what he did for us. And yet, without the resurrection, on the third day after his crucifixion, none of that matters at all. Because without the literal, historical, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything that we claim to believe as Christians is an absolute lie. It's a complete waste of our lives. In fact, if the resurrection is not true, let's just go. Let's burn this building down and go because none of it matters. But with the resurrection, church, everything changes. It's essentially what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. The letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, his first letter here to the church at Corinth, is believed to be the earliest written book of the New Testament. And it was believed to have been written within 20 years of the resurrection of Christ. And so this may be the earliest historical documentation we have of this monumental historical event. Keep that in mind as we read these verses together. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some has fallen asleep. I'm sure you can tell from the context, but he uses that term asleep multiple times in this passage. This means they died, right? Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles... Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is good news. Let's pray together. God, we know that without the resurrection of Jesus, our preaching, our faith, or anything we claim to do out of any religious expression is completely worthless. Lord, as Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised, then we are of most people most to be pitied because we claim to believe something that is a lie in that case. But Christ has been raised. Lord, and because of his resurrection, everything changes. God, I pray that we would grasp that a little more this morning. God, that we would see why the resurrection matters so much, why it is so foundational to our faith. Or more than that, I see, I ask that you help us to see how belief in the resurrection is not uh, some unintelligent nonsense. Lord, but it is uh, historically verifiable. Lord, that we can love you with our hearts and with our heads. God, and lastly, I pray that you would help us to see the impact. Lord, that if we, if we claim to believe that Jesus is alive, Lord, help us to realize that we cannot remain unchanged by that fact. Lord, would you move by your spirit in our hearts as we look at your word together? Lord, draw people to yourself that you might receive the glory. It's in Jesus' name. So today as we consider uh, and celebrate the glorious resurrection of Jesus, I want to ask and hopefully, hopefully provide a scriptural answer to three questions. No alliteration for you, I'm sorry. Uh, but the three questions are, why does the resurrection matter? How can we believe the resurrection is true? And what impact does the resurrection have on our lives? So let's jump into the first one. Why does the resurrection matter? As I've mentioned a couple of times today, because I firmly believe it, the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event in all of history. Because without the resurrection of Jesus, everything's meaningless. Acts says that those who proclaimed the gospel of the crucified and resurrected Jesus says they turned the world upside down in first century Rome. The fact that we are even sitting here 2,000 years after that event, singing and preaching and praying about it, shows us just is proof that the resurrection of Jesus is real. And yet, we must not only proclaim, church, the glory that Jesus is alive, but we need to know why it matters that Jesus is alive. Because as Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 15 that we just read, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. We are still in our sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So we have to understand why the resurrection of Christ matters so much. You know, if Jesus was merely uh, a religious leader like so many others who just offered some nice teachings... You know, he claimed to be divine. Maybe we, 
Maybe we ignore that part if we just think he's a nice religious teacher. But, but he, he offered some nice teaching, support, performed some pretty cool miracles. But then he just died and he decomposed in the ground. Then Jesus is just like every other dead religious leader. But he isn't dead. He's not decomposing in the ground. And he's not like every other religious leader. He is alive and he lives forevermore. And so the first reason that the resurrection of Jesus matters so much is because it confirms his identity. The resurrection confirms the identity of Jesus. Now Jesus made some radical claims throughout his earthly ministry. In John 10 verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They didn't like that. They, the guys around him didn't like that. The Jews who heard him say that, uh, they were infuriated, in fact. And it says his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him when he said that. And then he asked them why, and they said, for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claimed to be God. Similarly, in John chapter 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is Jesus claiming to be Yahweh, the God of, uh, that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And once again, they tried to stone him for blasphemy. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. And he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. They didn't like that either. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus was eventually arrested and he was tried for these crimes of blasphemy, he stood before the high priest. And Mark chapter 14 says that the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And even when he was dying upon the cross between two thieves who were crucified on either side of him, one of those thieves placed their faith in Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Surely I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. He offered forgiveness, the same forgiveness they said only God could offer. And he guaranteed an eternal inheritance to that thief. Who could do that but God alone? See, Jesus claimed to be God. He said that he was the promised Messiah. And he offered this forgiveness that only God can offer. Not to mention all of the incredible miracles that he did throughout his earthly ministry. Uh, even raising people from the dead on at least two occasions. But if Jesus did all that and then he was crucified and buried and that was the end of the story, none of that mattered at all. It was all a sham. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He was either one of the most prolific con artists who ever lived, or perhaps he was just an absolutely insane person who made preposterous claims with nothing to back them up, or... As his resurrection demonstrate, he is Lord. Jesus was everything that he claimed to be. And he demonstrated that through his rising from the grave. He is the promised Messiah. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the incarnate Son of Man. He is the resurrected King of the universe. And the resurrection of Jesus shows us that all of this and much, much more about him is true. 
And only resurrection could prove it to be so because nobody else can do that. The assurance that Jesus was raised from the dead is why the Apostle Paul could claim in Colossians that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You think Paul would have written that if Jesus had stayed dead? Of course not. He knew Jesus was who he said he was because he is the only one who could lay down his life and take it up again. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just another dead religious zealot who made a splash in his life and is decomposing dust in the ground like Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and so many others. But Jesus is alive, church, and his resurrection testifies that he is who he said he is. His resurrection confirms his identity. And secondly, one of the reasons, another reason that the resurrection matters so much is that it confirms the words of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of modern people who like to fancy themselves sophisticated, and they like to express some sort of affection for the teachings of Jesus. Oh, yeah, he had, he had good teachings. They, like, they really like the Sermon on the Mount. That one's good. That's safe. He didn't say he was God. We're good. Sermon on the Mount's cool. He said some good stuff about forgiveness and you know, maybe people not judging each other, so we like all that. So, yeah, well, he, he was all right. Jesus said some decent stuff. Um, they like the kind of moral living parts of his ministry. They might even look to uh, the life of Jesus as an example to be modeled. You know, he, was, he gave up a lot and traveled around and, you know, did a lot of things uh, for people. And they might even look to his selfless death as an example of a truly devoted martyr. But looking to Jesus as a mere moral teacher to be studied empties him of his power. We can't have Jesus without all that other stuff. I mean, we do, of course, as Christians, look to imitate the life of Jesus to teach us how to live. In fact, Scripture calls us to be imitators of Christ. But much more so, we look to the words of Jesus, for they command us how to live. Words that said things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Words that said things like, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Words like, Everyone who acknowledges me will, uh, before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. See, you can't have the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, you know, turn the other cheek, Jesus, without this Jesus too. And the resurrection confirms that his words are authoritative. We cannot cherry pick what we like about the words of Jesus to fit some sort of moral uh, living sense that we have. A person cannot claim to simply like some of Jesus' words and ignore the rest of them, the hard stuff. Now, of course, if he just died, we could do that. Because that's what we do with all these other guys. You know, eat the fish, spit out the bones. Maybe they said some good stuff. There's some wisdom in some of these, some of these uh, dead re religious zealots. So if Jesus just died, sure we could cherry pick. Because it's not authoritative. But he didn't just die. He's alive. And that means every word that he said is true. And it's to be submitted to. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrated that his words hold the authority of God Almighty, for he is the second person of the Trinity, and we must surrender our lives to his commands. So resurrection shows Jesus is who he said he was. It shows that when he spoke, 
It was authoritative. And thirdly, the resurrection completes the saving work of Jesus. Now, we often speak of the power of the cross. We've done that today already. We speak of all that Jesus accomplished through his substitutionary sacrifice there. And we rightly believe and emphasize the cross as the clear demonstration of God's love for us. Even while we were sinners, for Christ died for us. We know that it is only by the death of Jesus that our curse of sin could be paid for in full. And yet, the only reason that we know these things to be true is because Jesus showed us that he has the power over death and sin by rising from the grave. The empty tomb, then, only makes sense in light of the cross. And the cross only makes sense in light of the empty tomb. The wonderful cross has no saving power at all if the tomb is not empty. As Paul says, uh, what we read earlier, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But he has been raised. Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, the salvation that he purchased on the cross is completed. And it is accessible to us. Romans 6 says that if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Church, if Jesus is alive, and he is alive, his resurrection is the absolute foundation of our hope. Every moment of every day, not just during uh, one particular holiday, for he is our living hope for every moment. His resurrection is not simply the climax of the story of the Gospels. It is the hinge of all of history. It's the linchpin upon which everything we claim to believe rests. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. Christianity and all that we do in the name of faith is absolutely worthless if Jesus merely died. But if he is alive, we have salvation through his resurrection. If he is alive, he is who he said he is. And every word that he said is true. And because of these things, we do not have just a longing hope, church. We have a living Savior, a living hope. And He is the absolute assurance of our faith. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus matters so much. It's the living testimony that Jesus is the Messiah, that His words are authoritative, and that only He has the power to save us. So let's turn to the second question, though. Can we really believe that it is true? After all, I don't know if you ever thought about this. Maybe you were just taught that Jesus rose from the dead from the time you were a child, which is wonderful. I hope you were. But saying that we truly believe that this man laid down his life and that he took it up again, that's a radical belief. I don't know if you all ever considered that. That's a radical belief. It's the craziest thing that we claim to believe, that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, for those who believe it is true, I think that ultimately we know that it's true because the Holy Spirit removes the scales from our eyes. He opens our hearts to understand that truth in our hearts. But I also think that it's important for us to understand the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't want to get bogged down in this and go till 2 o'clock. Um, but Peter calls us, we looked at this recently, Peter calls us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I think that being able to defend the resurrection of Jesus is part of that. Making an answer when someone asks you for a reason for our hope. But also, we need to be able to defend our hope against, I mean our faith against skeptics. 
and doubters. But you know, there may come a time in your life when you, you become a skeptic, when you doubt. And, uh, you know, maybe not forever, but there, there may, may be seasons in our life that lead us to doubt whether or not what we, did, what we believe is true. Whether, when we question whether or not such a radical belief is really verifiable. And I think in those times, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, yes. But we need to be able to defend these things intelligently too. We need to know that they're true in our heart and know that they're true in our head. So how can we believe that the resurrection is true? You know, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is abundant. It's overwhelming, in fact. Biblical scholars say that the passage we read earlier from 1 Corinthians, as I mentioned to you, is the earliest written document affirming the resurrection. It was likely written within 20 years of that event. There is no ancient historical event that is as thoroughly documented as Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, there are a lot of things in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that only one or two talk about, including the birth of Jesus. They all four have meticulous details about the resurrection of Jesus. And so one of the first things you see when you read those testimonies of the resurrection of Christ in the Gospels is that Jesus appeared to many, to many people. He appeared to many Paul affirms that in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read earlier, uh, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So basically he's saying, go ask them if you don't believe, they're still around. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and then as one untimely born, he appeared to me. That's Paul. Hundreds of people were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So if this were a case in a court of law, the testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses would be compelling. It would be overwhelming. Not only because there were so many eyewitnesses, but because most of them didn't even believe it when they first were told about it. They had to be convinced by seeing it themselves. In fact, every time somebody is told about the resurrection of Jesus in in the gospel accounts, they don't believe what they're told. In John 12, uh, we get the account of uh, Thomas, who I think unfairly gets named Doubting Thomas. I think he's just normal Thomas because he doesn't believe it at first. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, we have seen the Lord. Thomas says, yeah, right. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I'm on board with Thomas. He's like, I'm not going to go with maybe Jesus as a twin or something. No, I got to see the nail scars and and the spear scar, and then I'll believe. He wants evidence. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, which is weird. Jesus could walk through walls after he resurrected. It's true. And he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, he knew exactly what Thomas needed. He says, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, Thomas was very skeptical when he was first told that Jesus is alive. He didn't even want to believe it. He needed to see the physical proof. 
He was, I think, like most of us. We wanted proof, evidence. We were reluctant to accept a preposterous claim without verification of it. And yet, when Thomas put his hand in the nail-scarred hand of Jesus, he knew he was the resurrected Savior. Similarly, in Luke 24, uh, some disciples encounter the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And they didn't want to believe it was true either. They had been told. They had heard about it. But they didn't believe because they had not witnessed it. They don't get called doubting James and John for the record. But, uh, but anyway, they didn't believe it. And after Jesus revealed himself to them, I read this uh, passage for you back when, I, when we had our Advent series. It's so cool. Jesus opens the Old Testament and reads to them all the times that there's foreshadowings of him. And eventually they end up believing. They see it. But it takes a while. Uh, it takes until they get back to wherever they were going. And in Luke, Luke 24 it says, when, he was at, when Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then they have this deja vu moment. Like, oh, I've seen this before. I've, oh, they know. They're, it says their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. They witnessed the resurrected Jesus and they told people. Not only did the skeptical followers of Jesus need proof in order to believe he was alive, but... Even Jesus' adversaries knew that he was alive. Scripture doesn't uh, give us a lot on this, but you can see it implicit in the story in Matthew 28. This is after Jesus has risen. And, you know, there were, there were guards there at the tomb. And they probably lost their jobs, right? Because the body that they were supposed to be guarding is not there anymore. Matthew 28 says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, meaning they paid them off, and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. See, these incompetent Roman guards knew so clearly that's not what happened. Nobody came and stole his body. He was alive. They knew this. So they had to make up a ridiculous cover story. And they had to be bribed to tell this story to stay out of trouble. They had to be paid off and say that Jesus' body was stolen in order to avoid acknowledging publicly what they knew to be true. So we have multiple eyewitnesses, including from adversaries of Jesus, testifying that he is alive. And, but there's also abundant historical evidence that the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. As I mentioned, this is told, in, told about in all four Gospels. And the clear account in all four stories testifies to the truth that the tomb that Jesus was buried in was found to be empty the Sunday morning after the Friday of his crucifixion. The empty tomb is thoroughly, meticulously described in the Gospels. So it, it makes it one of the most well-documented events, not only in the whole Bible, it's one of the most uh, well-corroborated events in, in human history. When you just look at ancient historical text, it's corroborated over and over again. And even the Romans who crucified him couldn't deny it. 
They tried to prevent it from happening by ensuring that the tomb was heavily guarded. Matthew says that uh, on that Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last frog will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You know, it's hard to imagine that the full weight of the Roman Empire would have been able to prevent the stealing of the body of Jesus from the tomb, if that's what happened. They had every reason to make sure that the body of Jesus stayed where it had been buried. Pilate says, Make it as secure as you can. And I assume, given the Romans' attention to detail when it came to, when it come to things like crucifixion, that they probably knew how to guard something pretty well. I mean, this was basically Fort Knox. He says, guard it as, as well as you can. And so the idea that Jesus' body could have been stolen, it didn't make any sense. How could this ragtag group of like fishermen and tax collectors, how could they have overpowered these well-trained Roman guards? And then after they did that, they moved the massive stone out of the way. They stole the body of Jesus. And by the way, for some reason, left the grave clothes there in the exact place his body was. Well, I mean, why would they have done that? Why would they have left the grave clothes behind? They took the time to... No. For some reason, the Roman guards... Uh, if, if the theory was that the Roman guards removed the body from the tomb... Well, that would have been good for them. Because then when people started saying, hey, Jesus is alive, they would have said... No, he's not. Here's his dead body. But they couldn't do that. You know, and the, the grave clothes is uh, something that really jumped out at me uh, when I was preparing for this that I've really not caught in uh, the resurrection stories before because the grave clothes being left behind are even further proof that the tomb was empty and that Jesus is alive. Um, in John 20 before the passage we read about Mary Magdalene earlier, it says on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, but she didn't go in yet. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, that's how John refers to himself, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they had laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John really has to point that out. He got there first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes, cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. So they didn't see the grave clothes and think, oh, somebody must have stolen his body. They saw the grave clothes and knew Jesus was alive. Before they got to the body, they just assumed that his body had been taken out of the tomb. But looking into the tomb, they immediately believed Jesus had been resurrected because his linens the, that he was wrapped in were in the exact place where they had been. No one removing a dead body would take the time to do such a thing, to take the grave clothes off and lay them exactly where they were. So these undisturbed grave clothes provide material evidence. And back to the court of law thing. We have eyewitnesses and we have material evidence that Jesus had risen from the grave. And thirdly, 
This story is not one that could have been invented or imagined. Now, some will claim that, but I want to tell you why those claims are ridiculous. Some claim that the whole story of resurrection is simply a fairy tale, that it's just made up. But as we have discussed, this denies the enormous amount of corroborating historical documentation that we have of the resurrection event. But even beyond that, it's a fairly ridiculous hypothesis for several reasons. Firstly, because as I mentioned, the, the records of the, document, or the documentation of the resurrection of Jesus are meticulous. I mean, over and over, there are details, details, details. Thomas Oden wrote that the problem with the hypothesis of invention is that the narratives are exceedingly graphic and enriched by the specific features of an eyewitness. They show every evidence of being the testimony of people who were there and candidly reporting exactly what they saw. The narratives of the discovery of the empty tomb seem to be too particularized to be fabricated, too molded by specific detail to have been invented. And as we've discussed, if the whole story was made up, why would they repeatedly have characterized the disciples as having been reluctant to believe that Jesus was alive? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. because You wouldn't build skeptics into the story because that would make it less believable. If they made up the story, they did a poor job of making up the story. Secondly, some would say that they were all just deluded. That it was just mass hysteria. They say that Jesus' followers simply thought they saw the resurrected Jesus because they really, really wanted to. You know, like some people see their dead relatives in their dreams or whatever. Um, if you do that, well, anyway, we'll talk. But they say that it was really just a delusion. But frankly, this hypothesis is harder to believe than it is just to believe in the resurrection because the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. Over the course of 40 days, he appeared in a variety of places and situations. He cooked breakfast of fish for his disciples. You ever seen a ghost do that or, or a, a delusion do that? He appeared to, the individ to individuals and he appeared to groups. There didn't seem to be any pattern to those appearances. He didn't just show up at, at the synagogue like one time and everybody saw and it could have just been a magic trick. Believing that the resurrection it was made up or that it was just the, the testimony of a bunch of hopeful, deluded fools, it's really more ridiculous than accepting the weight of the historical evidence that Jesus is, is alive, that he was raised from the grave, because there's so much evidence. In order to deny the resurrection of Jesus, you have to reject an overwhelming amount of historical evidence to the contrary. And you can look, look throughout history. There's been so many really, really smart people who have understood this to be true. You look at the testimony of people like C.S. Lewis, guys like Lee Strobel, um, th those are just in the last century, who they set out to disprove the resurrection, and in trying to disprove the resurrection, they were utterly convinced that the historical evidence was undeniable. Ironically, when you consider the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, it, also, it really takes more faith to deny the resurrection than it does to believe it. Because you have to say that supernatural can't happen. Even, even though history testifies that it does. So we've looked at why the resurrection of Jesus is so important to us and also why on the basis of historical evidence we can believe that it really happened. But lastly, as we wrap up, I want us to consider this. What impact does the resurrection have on our lives? The resurrection radically transformed the lives of those who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. I mean, how could it not? 
if Jesus was raised from the grave, then those who witnessed it immediately realize they would never be the same. The truth is, if we claim to believe it, we can never be the same either. Take the life of Peter, for example. Uh, Stephen talked a little bit about this last week when he preached uh, from 1 Peter. But if you look at the end of the life of Peter, the last thing he did before Jesus died is he, he's a coward. He was so fearful that he might be killed too when Jesus was on trial that he cowardly denied that he even knew him. And then after Jesus died, uh, Scripture tells us Peter hid behind locked doors with the other disciples. He was fearful and he was a coward. And then he sees the resurrected Jesus. And a few weeks later, he preaches probably the most powerful sermon ever preached at Pentecost. And 3,000 people are saved. He was so confident in his proclamation that Jesus was alive. This is the same guy who, who said, no, 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 I don't know the man. Preaching boldly the gospel of the resurrected Jesus just a few weeks later. Look at the life of Paul. Paul was, as you know, a Pharisee of Pharisees. It seems that his whole mission was to stamp out these claims of Jesus' followers that Jesus had come back from the grave. He was a vile persecutor of the church. He even sanctioned the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And yet, when the resurrected Christ reveals himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, he too is radically transformed. He said of himself, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I mean, what an absolute 180 in his life. This dude wrote most of the New Testament. But before that, he was killing Christians. What, what causes that kind of transformation? I'll tell you this, it's not a hopeful faith, it's not a fairy tale, and it's not a delusion. It's witnessing the resurrected Jesus that transforms people like that. He had borne witness to the risen Christ. Most of the early followers of Jesus were persecuted, tortured, or killed for testifying to the truth of the gospel. And who would be willing to die for something they knew to be untrue? Nobody does that. You don't die for a lie. You don't die for a fairy tale. But you'll lay down your life for the truth. And these people were. They were willing to die. And many did die because they knew the truth of the resurrection was worth laying down their lives for. They knew that to live is Christ and to die is gain for he has already defeated death. Is that true for you? Do you really believe that Jesus is alive? Because I, wanna, I want you to know that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ caused you to come here this morning, but then tomorrow it doesn't have any bearing on your life, you should, you should consider whether or not it's something you truly believe. It is impossible for you to say that you truly believe that Jesus is alive and it not affect your life. Because if Jesus is alive, he is the Messiah. His words are authoritative. And he calls you to repent of your sin and trust in him. Thomas Oden wrote that the primary evidence for the resurrection today remains changed lives, walking testimonies, people willing to proclaim the good news the world over. Is that true of us? Like those early disciples who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, are we willing to lay down our lives to proclaim the truth that Jesus is alive? Are we willing to endure mockery and persecution for the gospel?
Are we willing to build our lives on the sacrificial atoning death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to surrender our whole selves to the demands of the resurrected king, deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him? If we claim to believe the resurrection of Jesus is true, then that truth will produce radical transformation in our lives. That's why Paul said in Romans 6 that if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is that true of you? Are you dead to sin and alive in Christ? The Bible tells us that if we repent of our sins and place our faith in the resurrected Savior, we share in His resurrection. Isn't that good news? We share in His resurrection. And the Bible also tells us that the same Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity... The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of all those who believe in him. That same Spirit. May we proclaim along with Mary Magdalene when she saw Jesus and she went and told everybody, I have seen the Lord. May we remember and may we celebrate on this most sacred of days and every single day the glorious, historically verifiable, and incredible reality that Christ is risen Christ is risen indeed. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the absolute truth that Jesus is alive. God, that we need not accept some sort of glib faith. Lord, that we aren't just brainwashed or deluded into believing it. Uh, For we know, uh, even just based on the historical documentation, Lord, uh, that it is true. But God, even more than that, we know that it is true because your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, has revealed it to our hearts. God, it resonates in our souls. Lord, we know that Jesus is alive, Lord, and we stake our lives on this claim. Lord, help us to not believe that somehow we can uh, affirm this the truth with our lips and then live however we want. God, we cannot remain unaffected if we believe that Jesus is alive. Lord, we see that all throughout the Bible, all throughout uh, these testimonies after Jesus was raised. Lord, in the lives of of your people. God, how they were radically transformed by having witnessed the resurrected Christ. Lord, would you do that work to us as well? Would you radically transform us as you show us yourself, O Lord? God, if there are those here who have never understood what that means, if they've never understood the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross and his victory over the grave, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, O Lord. God, thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, thank you that all who call on your name are saved. God, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel of the resurrected Christ. 
God, more than just on Easter, would you help us to live the resurrected life that you have for us? Thank you that because Jesus defeated the grave, Lord, our sins are forgiven, but we share in his resurrection life if we trust in him. God, would you live through us? Would you produce by your spirit fruit in our lives? Would you draw people to yourself as a result of our words and deeds? Or maybe proclaim that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Lord, thank you. Lord, apply these truths to our hearts that they might transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.